Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the best of my time capsule 2023 part one. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the first of our special compilation episodes with guests from the past year on My Time Capsule. It's been a fantastic year, and we've had some wonderful guests who've shared some extraordinary stories with us from their lives, four things they love and one thing they like to bury and forget. So I thought I'd take some of my favourite moments from this year and package them up so you can be reminded of the episode or maybe discover it for the first time. Either way, here is my first guest, and it's someone that I spoke to almost exactly a year ago as he sat in the auditorium of the theatre where he was about to appear in pantomime. So bless him for giving me the time. It's the EastEnders and Call the Midwife star, Cliff Parisi, talking about one of his first jobs before he chose the easy life and became an actor like me. Although, you know, sometimes this talking into a microphone thing can become pretty bloody gruelling. Oh, sorry, here's Cliff. What did you do as a job then when you first left school? First job, I think, was washing up in a fish and chip shop. Um, then I was lucky enough to get a job on Bullen's Removals, which I think Pickford's bought out in the end. They were a big removal company that did industrial and office, like um, commercial and um, banks and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And we moved huge, like universities. So... When I worked, I worked. We run up and down the stairs with filing cabinets, um, loaded filing cabinets. And if you couldn't make the bend on the stairs, they'd smash you into the wall. I mean, <laughs> you, you just... Because you were earning the same money as quite a lot of the grown men. It was only £5.50 a day, but they were feeding the family on it. Amazing. So they, they hated you for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you should have been go, in school. You're taking it home. So you had, to be, you had to be tough. You had to be able to do it. And you'd load 22 lorries a day. Wow. And you'd carry everything. 
down at least two flights of stairs. You must have been ripped. Oh, oh man, I was so fit. But I was thin, you'd never know, but I was strong as an ox. But, you know, I did, I did have a couple of injuries that niggle me and still now in my back. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it was great. You gave me independence, got me some nice new shoes, jacket, girlfriend. I had enough money for a pint of beer. <laughs> so I was, I was an happy, happy young man. As happy as you'll ever be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Cliff Parisi, strong as an ox. I bet he still is. Now, quite recently, I had the privilege to talk to the wonderful Alid Jones about all sorts of things. But here he is talking about the thing that he loves most, whales. The country, of course, not the animals. Every time I go back to Wales, I just think to myself, this place is magic, you know. And where I'm from in Wales... I, I don't think I'm bad in saying that there wasn't much going on when I was a kid. <laughs> no. So is that Anglesey? Yeah. Most of the clothes yes. I wore as a kid were from the only shop in Bangor, Burton's. Um, <laughs> whereas now, you know, North Wales, Anglesey is the foodie capital of wherever, really. You know, people have realised that the produce that we have there is the best in the world, um, from oysters to mussels to salt to you name it, you know. And, and I'm very proud of the fact that we've upped our game in that way, really, and put Wales on the map as being not just the land of song, but also the land where, you know, if you want natural good produce, that's where you come, really. And, and, and now when I go back to Wales, you know, I, I sit in my mum and dad's garden and... I just feel all pressure just drip off my shoulders, really. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's an incredible feeling, really. Or I'm out on my dad's boat fishing with him. It's, yeah, it, the thing I couldn't wait to get from when I was a teenager, I can't wait to get to now. <laughs> and I, I love the fact also that Wales is known as the land of song. You know, wherever you are in the world, there are always Welsh more than happy to sing, you know, um, and it's unique. It is unique, absolutely, and, and that sound of a, a male voice choir is completely unique, isn't it? It's an amazing. What I love about that is it's all-inclusive, that you will have people amongst those men who have extraordinary voices, Yeah, and you'll also have men who can just sing along. Yeah. And that blend of the different voices is what gives it its quality, I think. Absolutely. I remember interviewing Gareth Edwards uh, for a TV show and he said that when they were on the rugby pitch playing for Wales and they heard Callan Lan being sung from mm. the stands and all of a sudden 70,000 people are singing it, he said, you might as well have given us three points on the board straight away. Because <laughs> of course. It, the energy that it created. And I had a little feel of that myself, you know. I remember singing the Welsh National Anthem in the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff before Wales went on to beat England in the rugby and it doesn't happen very often, I know, but um, <laughs> it happened that night and uh, yes, we had to carry my dad back to his hotel room. Um, <laughs> and I remember singing and all of a sudden my cheeks were shaking, my body was shaking, my legs were shaking and it wasn't nerves, it was, I could feel the energy of the crowd hit me. It was like a warm wave of something, breath I suppose, but you could feel it you know, literally hit you. And I, I was not in control of that performance at all, you know, but it mm. was, what a highlight. It was amazing. And uh, you know, I say that's a highlight. The other time I sang in the Millennium Stadium, I sang quite a few times in the rugby, but there was one other time where they asked me to sing in a charity shield match between my beloved Arsenal and Chelsea. And <laughs> I had to keep quiet to everyone that I was an Arsenal fan. It wasn't in the programme or anything because they didn't want to stir anything up. And no. 
It's a very, very lonely walk, let me tell you, from the touchline to the centre circle in the Millennium Stadium when you're about to sing. And the gentleman said, and now to sing the national anthem. And I started walking onto the pitch thinking, this is going to be fine, everyone loves me, sort of thing. Um, He went, (laughs) Arsenal fan, Ala Jones. No! (laughs) And half the stadium would just go, boo, you rubbish! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was frightening. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, Just <laughs> awful. I bet it was, but I wish I'd been there. It's been such fun meeting people like Alid through my time capsule. We'd not met before, but we got on well, I think. This podcast seems to do that. People seem to love a chat about things that they cherish. Although the Irish comedian, Deirdre O'Kane, didn't seem too keen on the idea of having to prepare dinner for her kids over and over again, as she explains here. I took time off from being a comic to be a stay-at-home mum. And, and every time I say stay-at-home mum, I know I shouldn't because there are, there are men out there doing the full-time thing. And as I like to say, I take my hat off to the four of them because <laughs> it isn't easy at all. But what happened to me when I was doing that job was I became obsessed with food. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I couldn't believe how often kids needed to eat. I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> three they never stopped, three meals they? a day doesn't begin yeah. to cover it. No. It doesn't begin to cover it. And I remember my head, literally, and nothing else came into my mind. Every day was literally what we had now for the next meal and the next meal. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember at one time it was so bad that my head, my head would think like this. I would be thinking about what we have for the... What do we have for the breakfast? What do we have for the dinner? The midnight, the bedtime snack, the breakfast, the morning snack, the lunchtime, the afternoon snack, the dinner, the hot chocolate, the breakfast, the lunch boxes, the lunch, the water bottles, the laundry will never be done. The dinner, the dinner. Oh, geez, we're back. We're back. We're back at the dinner again. And going, yes. right, well, there's there's chicken in the fridge. Uh, how long is that there for? I wonder now, two days, maybe it's three. Oh, I'm sure it's fine. Those sell-by dates are only for insurance. Oh, still, you know, if in doubt, throw it out. Ah, no, I'm sure it's perfectly fine. Oh, still, no point in poisoning the whole family. That's the way my head would go. And then I thought, oh, and then I'd take the chicken and I'd throw it out and I'd go, oh, God, right, I'll have to make pasta. But then i go, I've, I've got to get some protein into Daniel or his brain will never develop. Oh, the, the protein and cheese, isn't there? Ah, yeah, that'll do. And maybe I could use up those bananas that are turning black. Note to self, dear, just stop buying bananas and waiting for them to turn black. I'll have to make banana bread. Oh, God, no, I'm not in the mood for that I could make smoothies what do I need for smoothies milk raspberries ice cream what's the story with the raspberries four quid for five raspberries and a punnet I must remember to grow them in the next life I, I literally I lost my mind about food and, yeah. and as a result I somebody cooks for me or I get to eat out I'm the happiest woman alive <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised <laughs> Deirdre O'Kane. If you get the chance to see her perform live, jump at it. She's hysterical. As is the comedian Dave Gorman. And one of the highlights for me this year was talking to him at Kite Festival in a huge tent in front of over a thousand people. It was our 300th episode and Dave, as we knew he would, did us proud. I would like to bottle a feeling. I don't know how I would put that in a time capsule. I'm sure I can do it. It's the feeling you get when you jump out of an aeroplane for the very first time. <laughs> I, I, I've done a skydive. I've actually done two skydives. And it's very important when I say the first time. 
Right. Because it can't be repeated, which is why I'd like to bottle it, because I tried to do it again to see if I could get the same feeling, and mm. I, it failed. It didn't deliver the same feeling to me. No. I was, did, on the second time, did you wear a parachute then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bo- both times I did what is called um, a tandem dive. So you have a man on your back, and he has the parachute on his back. Yeah. And, and so you don't have to learn anything, you just jump out and free fall and he controls everything. And it is very exciting, Mike. In fact, some people do get an erection. <laughs> and I can tell you that he did. Um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> so the thing with the parachute, because you're, you're strapped to this bloke, you're in an aeroplane, you're at 20,000 feet. I did my first one in New Zealand. I was at the New Zealand Comedy Festival. A bunch of comics went out to do the skydive together, four of us. And as, as each person who did it had this adrenaline rush that the others couldn't relate to. And so it was one person did it and he was all on his own. And then the second person did it and those two were bonded in a way that the others couldn't. And then the third person joined the gang and we just like... It was the most testosterone fueled adrenaline fueled thing. You're in the plane, they open the door, that's terrifying. Mm. You get to the edge and sit over the edge looking 20,000 feet down to earth. (laughs) This is terrifying. It's also as far away as I've ever been from home because I've gone all the way around the world to New Zealand and then 20,000 feet that way. (laughs) And you're just terrified. And I think the reason that it's particularly terrifying, this is the feeling that I want, is when you jump out, it stopped being terrifying and it became divine in a way that I wasn't expecting. I sat there terrifying, never been more frightened in my life, and then I jumped out and went, this is amazing. Mm. And I had no fear whatsoever. And the thing I would identify was, was going on, I think, is while you're in the plane strapped to that man, you could still fight him and not do it. <laughs> You've still got a measure of control. And when you sit on the edge of the plane, I could give him one swift punch there, and I could crawl back into the plane, and mm. I could not do it. But once you've gone... You have no agency left anymore. You have now succumbed to the fates. And it's that feeling of succumbing and just going, this is amazing. When I came home from New Zealand, I raved about the parachute jump to all my friends. And another friend said, oh, I'm doing one for charity. Why don't you come and do it with me? And I went and did one near Morecambe. And I got in the plane with the man strapped on my back. And I wasn't terrified. And I got to the edge. And I sat over and I wasn't terrified because I'd done it before. And I jumped out and it was still fun but it wasn't the same. And I want that feeling again. Yeah, because really, fundamentally, you are describing a situation where you say we jumped out of a plane, but you were pushed out of a plane. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, but it was, it, it's that giving in yeah. and not knowing what's happening next and it could go horribly wrong is the most joyful. I think maybe the other thing would be maybe the very, very first time I ever went on stage to do stand-up as a 19-year-old boy. Mm. That, except you do still have agency. When you've walked on stage, you are still in charge and it's still your choice about what you say next or whatever. But that feeling of this, is, this could go awful, this is awful, this is awful. I'm on stage now and it's not awful and I like it. Yeah. It's maybe there as well. So maybe three times in my life I've had something akin to that feeling. And it's... It's divine. I'm not religious, but there was something weirdly pleasing about just going, this could be the end, and I'm happy with what I've done. Yeah, because at least I'm taking someone with me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, some New Zealand jock. (laughs) 
Dave Gorman. Brilliant in that episode and also in our Christmas My Time Capsule episode. We're very lucky that such well-known and busy people give us their time. Then again, all our less-known guests have been equally brilliant. Take Hal Roberts. Hal who, I hear you ask? And unless you're from the Board of Education, I can understand that. He's a great writer on education of children and was for many years a teacher. But Hal, by his own admission, wasn't sure why we'd asked him to be a guest. Well, I already knew something about Hal, and I knew what a fascinating and entertaining man he is, as I hope this clip from our chat demonstrates. And I thought this will be the best novel I could do with them, and it was To Kill a Mockingbird. I went in and I started reading it to them because of its themes, you know, and, and, and you know, listeners who, who don't know it, there will be a spoiler shortly, but, you know, it's, it's a novel that deals with racism and, and childhood and so on. So I thought they'll really love this. And as it happens, this was another film that my father would make me watch, the Gregory Peck, mm-hmm. Robert, Robert Mulligan movie with mm. Robert Duvall as Boo Radley, that and care. So now I'm teaching and I feel I've got the crowd behind me because I know this stuff. So I've read the book, I've made my notes and I go in and teach. Now the first chapter of To Kill a Mockingbird is a bit slow. And Brett, he won't happy. Do you remember him? <laughs> yeah. He won't happy. And he's like, he starts banging his head on table, <laughs> like literally just smacking his own head on table. And I'm, because I've been on a behaviour management course, I'm, I'm just tactically ignoring it, they call it. You know, you just ignore it. So the kid's proper smacking his head on a table. And eventually I have to just stop and say, Brett, what's up? And he said, he looks at me and, he sa- and his, his head's gone red. His forehead's red. <laughs> and he says, sir, this is boring. And I went, look, just stick with it. We'll be all right. Please just stick with it. Mm. And he was like shaking his head. And because he said it, all the other kids are like nodding yeah. and agreeing with him. And I'm like, oh no. And I'm losing the room. Mm. We've, all, we've all been there, Mike. Yeah, we have. I'm losing the room. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I said, please just stick with it because you're going to love it. And he really eyed me up, did Brett. And he just said, sir, do an accent. <laughs> and I said, pardon? He said, do an accent. Now, He'd picked on the right dude, fortunately, yeah. because I grew up in the 70s and 80s on a diet of American TV shows like <laughs> The A-Team and Chips yeah. and Night Rider. And when I used to play out with my mates, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I, when we used to play out, we'd just role play all the time. And, mm-hmm. and we'd be all American. I, I was always like Steve, I think based on Steve Austin, <laughs> the world's first bionic man. So I just slipped into, I'm good at accents, and I just slipped into it. And I I was proper pushing forward with, I think, a really good Louisiana (laughs) Southern drawl, (laughs) echoing the bayou and all that. And and when I looked up, bravely looked up, all the boys in this class were watching me with their heads in their arms, you know, just lying on their desks, mesmerised. And it was at that point, this is, this is why it's important to me. At that point, I realised when working with people, risk is everything. Mm-hmm. When performing, stepping up, stepping out, applying your professional imagination, which is what you do as an actor yeah, all the time, mm-hmm. and inviting, inviting your audience, inviting, in my case, inviting these kids to step into a world was everything. I learned so much just from 
that class. Well, I'm complimented, Hal, that you compare what you do to what I do because you're stuck with those kids for the whole year. I get a new audience. If I yeah. if I fuck it up, <laughs> they all go away and then another one comes in and I get another yeah. chance, whereas you yeah. are putting the whole year on the line by doing that. Yeah, yeah. I think there is there's a sense of building and developing mm-hmm. and and developing that and and i suppose that goes back to the relationship by the end of it uh the famous you know one of the famous bits into kill a mockingbird is is the uh the court scene the mm-hmm. court sequence oh i think um, you had a field day didn't you oh uh, yeah well i, I put a uh, uh, spoiler alert atticus <laughs> finch the adult hero he loses the case doesn't he and, mm. and the innocent man the innocent black man who's been accused of rape uh tom robinson goes to prison where he, he is murdered Mm. And I put a plastic chair on a table and I just said, I just said to the kids, I said, right, let's say when I'm working with kids now, it's let's say is basically let's, let's imagine. Yeah. Let's say, I I never say let's imagine because kids (laughs) think I don't want to. So (laughs) let's say this is Atticus Finch sitting in his chair and he's, he's just lost the case and the Ku Klux Klan have, have won. Yeah. Now, what do you think of the white community who were leaving, whooping and cheering, as they do in the novel? And we reread the sequence. And Brett put his hand up and I said, go on, Brett. And he said, sir, they're all bastards. <laughs> and I, and I, I was like nodding at him sagely like, yeah. Yeah, but all I could think was, how do we now expand that to a GCSE response? <laughs> you know, that was my next task. Yeah. I then said, who's going to come and reassure this this man? Who's going to come and reassure him? And we've all established he's a great man. So who's going to come and reassure him? The chair is the man. None of the kids wanted to get up, <laughs> uh, apart from Brett. So he, he, he got up and he went, I'll do it, I'll do it. So he went up to the chair. He's now, I'm now at the back of the classroom. And he's at the front talking to a chair. And this is what he says. This is what he said, Brett. He said, and this is, it, this is, this is him with his lovely Barnsley dialect accent. Mm. He just said, that's done all right. No one could ask for more. You're a good man. Oh. And I'm at the back <laughs> and tears. I've got like tears in my of eyes. Course. And I feel like I've just been lifted on their shoulders and carried through the fields of <sighs> gold like... Like Robin Williams in you Dead Poets Society. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's the book. And the book has just sat on my shelf. I, I, I must admit, that's, that's 20, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, that I reckon. Yeah. And I was in a pub in, in Wakefield, not far from me, and I, I got a tap on the shoulder, and it was a kid in the class who's now a grown-up, and he told me the story, and I'd forgotten it. Oh. He told me that story about Brett and all that and the boring book. And I'd kind of forgotten because you do, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I dug out the book and I remembered it all, you know, and, and mm. yeah, so. How brilliant. So that's my first object. The fantastic Hal Roberts. What a story. And the whole episode is like that. So if you missed it, do have a listen. Now, Hal may have forgotten that story about Brett, but we never really forget the momentous moments in our childhood, do we? Another guest I spoke to at a festival, Ink Festival, in front of an audience, was the actor David Morrissey. David is such a classy actor. One of our country's finest, I'd say. And maybe this clip from our conversation explains why. When I was younger, I wanted to be an actor. That was it. I just did. It was the thing I always wanted to do. 
Uh, I was in a school with a lot of sporting lads and girls who were like always in the first team and that that wasn't me. I wasn't really, I love sport. I love football particularly. I boxed for a while, but I was never going to be any good at any of it. Mm. And then I moved schools quite a lot because my parents were moving around and stuff. And I ended up in this junior school. I had quite a good drama department. You know, they had a quite hippie teachers and they were doing a nativity play. But it was a nativity play with a difference. They didn't just do the sort of towels on the head and the donkey and all that. <laughs> they did this thing in the local church, which was basically they had the nativity scene and the statues, but they had people from the community played by us kids saying what Christmas meant to them. And I played this old man, and I had to come down to the front of the uh, church and say, and look at the scene and say, this means nothing to me. I fought two world wars for this country, and nobody talks to me. Nobody listens to me. So what's this got to do with me? And I just had to do that. That was it. But I got right into it. <laughs> I got right. I was watching old man thinking, okay, I'm going to have a stick. I'm going to have a coat. I'll stick a hat on. I was doing the walking and stuff like that. I looked at it physically different and stuff. And my mom, who came to all my things, she said afterwards, she said, I didn't know it was you until you got to the front of the side. I thought, oh, they've, they've let somebody in, you know. <laughs> And she said, but then when you got and you started talking, I was like, that's our David. Uh And I don't know what that was, but I I thought, wow, that's what you're supposed to do, you know. So from then on, I failed my 11 plus, which I... Well done. Still, today, have such an anger about the (laughs) fact that, you know, the whole of my secondary education was put down to this exam I had to do at 11. Yeah. And everything was decided for me after that. It was terrible. And I'd, I'd been in four or five schools by then, so. But when I was on my secondary school, which was a secondary modern, and the word secondary always bothered me as well, <laughs> uh, they did no drama at all. I mean, in fact, they didn't do that much of anything. Just as long as you were quiet in class, that was enough. <laughs> and I got to a point where I thought, I really wasn't having a great time. And I thought, when was I last really happy about my life and stuff? And it was when I was doing this little play you know also at that junior school I'd done the scarecrow in the wizard of oz which I'd loved so I started doing this thing of just saying to people I want to be an actor I want to be an actor I want to be an actor and thankfully I grew up in Liverpool where that wasn't weird you know <laughs> the fact that you didn't want to be in a band was weird yeah. <laughs> but uh, they took it seriously it was a, it's a city that takes the art seriously and so somebody at one point said have you been to the everyman and I went to the everyman theater I went to the youth theater I got to the box office and I said, oh, you know, I want to be an actor. <laughs> and the woman said, oh, you want the youth theatre? You go down here around the back. You know, and all I said, OK. So I went around the back of this theatre. And I walked to this door and it was like this noise behind this door of people going crazy. Just this absolute people having fun. Were you not shy at first? Well, I think when I stood outside and I thought, if I go through that door, my life's going to change. And I didn't go through the door. I thought, I'm not doing it. I wasn't ready. And I sat down, and then this rather pretty girl ran past me and through the door, and I thought, oh, I'll give her a go. <laughs> Yet it's possible that's how we all got into acting. Or if not how, why? Anyway, I hope you're enjoying this collection of anecdotes from people's lives. More to come, of course, and for our ACAST Plus subscribers, that will happen now. But for the rest of us, it's time for a short ad break. We'll be back very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the best of my time capsule 2023 part one. Now, one of the most popular episodes of this year was with the presenter, DJ and broadcaster Ian Lee, who explained at one point why he was quitting all that and becoming a counsellor. What led you down that route, though? What made you think, you know what? That's something I'd be interested in doing, being a counsellor. I can tell you the moment that it, it kind of clicked was about four years ago. We had a guy phone up the radio show, and I was doing a late-night radio show, and he'd taken an overdose. And he didn't know where he was. He was outside somewhere, and he didn't know where he was. So I kept him on air for 30 minutes. Mm. Um, and the reason I kept him on air was because I was getting him to describe what he could see. We knew he was in Plymouth. And then he was describing, I can see this, I can see this, I can see this. And someone phoned up and said, oh, I think I know where he is. I think he's here. Mm. So then my producer phoned emergency services. And I was talking to him for half an hour just to, you know, keep him. And he he disappeared for seven minutes. He stopped talking. I thought, oh, "Oh, shoot, man, this guy's dead. Yeah. And I kept talking and kept talking. And he came back. Eventually the police picked up the phone. We've got him. We'll deal with this now. And he went to intensive care. He lived, but he he did die, and they brought him back to life. So it was serious. This was a real mm-hmm. close call. And <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to say. So we're, we're doing all the supportive stuff, and after 15 minutes, I have nothing left. So I said, right, what's your favourite Die Hard movie? I'm asking him about <laughs> Die Hard when he's dying. <laughs> and I thought, this is, not, this is not good. So I came away from that, Michael, thinking, I wonder what I could have done differently if I'd have known what I was doing. If I had some skills, apart from mm-hmm. life skills, if I had some actual skills in my in my tool belt, wonder what yeah. I could have done differently. So that was the point where I, it really started, I started considering it. And then I lost a job just into lockdown. I lost that radio gig and there was nothing on the horizon and the timing was right to sign up for a diploma. You know, it all fell into Mm. place. The universe, the universe gave me the opportunity. 
and the very best of luck with it, Ian. I'm sure like everything else he's tried, Ian will be great at it. Okay, here's a little bit of the very funny episode I recorded with the actor and star of the great comedy show Smack the Pony, who is now, of course, a very successful stand-up comedian, the lovely Fiona Allen, telling me about how she tries out material for her act through social media. But I always think it's an odd thing when people sometimes put the most private things out there. For what? I'm not quite sure. No. I've never felt the need to. I just got on with my job, really. And then, you know, something now, I think the stand-up's making me do more with it, with the Instagram thing is because little things will happen and I test it out almost and then I might do a, a stand-up. Now, this is a very girly thing, but for an example, I went to a, a shop, um, this is a few weeks ago, to get a new eyeshadow because my favourite one had run out. Yes. And the girl in the shop said, uh, we don't have any in stock. And and she was about 23, I reckon, and, and, and she was a very typical shop assistant in a sense that <laughs> she looked at me as if, you know, a middle-aged mom coming in. And I said, oh, well, could you take a look? Just maybe, and so there's these big drawers under makeup counters. They have the big drawers yeah. where you, and so she bent down and opened one very, very slowly. <laughs> and she said, wasn't in that one. She closed it very, very slowly. And she opened the other one very slowly, posed it very slowly. And then she got up and she goes, no. And then she said, I'll look online. And then she got her phone. And then she did a lot of clicking that had to keep going up in the top. And there was this, what I called, do you know what a shellac is? Um, no. A shellac is a, a, a nail thing. You know when you see people with these big, oh, yeah, shiny, yeah. long nails and they last for months? Yes. Yeah. It's a really weird thing. And it's caught on it. she was doing this shellac click. <laughs> and it was clicking and it was clacking. And it was like nails down a blackboard. It was... She was doing the shellac click and turned around and said to me, oh, well, it's been discontinued. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, why? And she said, because that colour, it's not trending right now. And I said, hang on a minute. I said, it's brown. I said, it's brown. My eyeballs are brown. And then childishly afterwards, I looked it up and I said, what's the main colour worldwide of eyeballs? And it's brown above <laughs> blue, green, hazel, grey. And so then I was that I was that sort of irritated. I do a little thing about it. And then, and then, you know, I'll just now do little things like that. And it's more about stuff that sort of annoys me or whatever. Yeah, but that is funny. Um, it is funny. It's not but trending. It was crazy. Not, not trending. trending. My eyeballs aren't trending right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> just unbelievable. Fiona Allen. Right, I don't know if you've come across the American classical composer and conductor Eric Whittaker at all. Well, I hadn't until we recorded our episode, but I honestly found him one of the most fascinating men I've spoken to. He started out wanting to write and perform pop and rock, and this is his story of how that all changed. All the people I know are self-taught and are interested in pop music to make that shift into classical music because mm. that's such a discipline. You would have to go right back to the beginning and, in a way, reteach yourself everything, wouldn't you? You would think. Mm. So as it turns out, that actually this is, if you don't mind, this is a beautiful segue into what my second time capsule I don't mind at be. all, no. Yes. <laughs> so I'll start by saying this. So at 18 years old then not reading a note of music, I went off to college and I grew up in Nevada on the West coast of the United States. I wore actual cowboy boots. So, <laughs> so, so real cowboy country. And I auditioned for a music scholarship there only because I knew that I loved music. I honestly thought I just want, would be a pop musician for mm -hmm. the rest of my life or maybe score films, but I didn't get a music scholarship. Of course they, you know, I couldn't read music, <laughs> I, um, but, but in the, 
audition room at the time was the choir conductor, a man named David Weiler. And David took me over to his room and he asked me to sing through some things. And he could see immediately that even though I couldn't read music, that I I could, I had an ear, Mm. that if he played something to me like a parrot, I could sing it back to him. So he invited me to join the choir. And I was reluctant at first. (laughs) But then I went to my first rehearsal about two weeks after they had started. And we started by singing the Requiem by Mozart. Oh, marvelous. And I had never... (laughs) Yeah, I was standing in a room full of 100 people. I was, I was a bass, so we were in the middle of, of the room. And David lifted his arms, and boom, we launched into that that fugue. And I look back now, and I think it, it was more than just being overwhelmed by by the music of it, by the the, the counterpoint and the, the the harmonies and the just this other world that I didn't know existed. I realize now that that moment is the first time I ever felt part of something larger than myself. Mm. And it, it changed my life. In a single rehearsal, I left a transformed person. And so my time capsule item <laughs> would be this score from the Mozart Requiem. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. At that moment, towards the end of that, there's the moment where they sing Kyrie Elysium. It holds on this note uh, and it does the wrong note. Do you know what I mean? Uh, if, if you're... Am I making sense? Well, if, if we're talking it, about the well, same moment... It, it, there's dissonance there, which you just don't expect. You expect it to be saying, you know, it to be glorious in a way, to be exalting God and life. And, but in fact, what it does is it suddenly makes this sound that makes you go, oh my God, there's something wrong. Yeah, I'll tell you what, what's interesting about that is if we're talking about the same moment, the very end of the Curie Eleison, then it ends yeah. not major or minor. So there's actually no dissonance. It's completely hollow, which, right. which you would never expect. And it's also just beautiful text painting that he's doing there by, by leaving mm. that ambiguous. And it also then prepares you for the launch into the Dies Irae, which comes right afterwards, uh, the day right of wrath, yeah. day of reckoning. Mm. It's I could oh. I could go on and on about the writing of, I mean, of that piece. I do it's, I think it's amazing? What an amazing skill he had. I mean, I think as Salieri says in the film, you know, it's it's God given. Yeah, that it's extraordinary. That that is something I've known in my time. Some musicians um, who were you could see were just touched by the hand of God. Were so unbelievably talented. Mm. And then there's Mozart. <laughs> there there is there is story after story of these musical things that Mozart did that are incomprehensible you can't yeah. imagine my, my favorite one is that i think it was the 21st no no i think 23rd piano concerto anyway he had run out of time while of course while he's writing it so he played the first performance so he didn't bother writing out the entire piano score because he knew he would play it mm-hmm. but then also he didn't have time to make a full score so he would have played without a conductor so he simply wrote the parts which, if you can imagine this, that means that you know in your head the entire score. You know what the clarinet will play in movement two on measure 66, mm. and you can write just their parts for them. <sighs> this is inconceivable yeah. that somebody could, could do this musically. It's, it's a mind like mm. yeah, maybe, maybe once in a millennia. I love it when the passion that someone has for a subject just pours out of them, like it clearly did there with Eric. But then sometimes that passion is really personal. The actor Lorelai King talked about COVID and the COVID inquiry, and for her, it is heartbreakingly personal, as she lost her husband to that dreadful virus. 
This is not an easy thing to listen to, but especially now, it's important, I think, that we never forget, for the sake of those who are still suffering. This is Lorelai King. Volunteering at the wall is something that gives my life meaning because the bereaved, they, they share their stories with us online and also in person when they come to the wall. Mm. And these stories are heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. You know, 240 plus thousand people died of COVID and in this country and exponentially out the, the number of people affected by that. Mm. And I see that the grief is not like other grief. And also, I see why why some of us still rage about things like Partygate. I'll call it Partygate as a no. kind of shorthand. Yes. And I know some people who perhaps have not been bereaved don't really understand why the rage is as red hot as it was for some of us. But it's because people are angry because those who obeyed the rules that were flouted so comprehensively by those who made those rules mm. and by those who enforced those rules. I don't know if you remember giving fines to people sitting 10 feet apart in a park because there was a sandwich on the bench or, or whatever. Yeah. Whereas Boris Johnson, mm. Dominic Cummings. Mm -hmm. Angela Stratton laughing about how, as they strategized about pulling the wool over our eyes. And, and it's a very particular kind of rage because for us, there are no do-overs. Um, Vince died without me because I was staying away to keep him safe, as I'd been told to do. Oh, and during the pandemic, people lost so much. You know, they lost their businesses, um, weddings postponed. They couldn't see their families. They couldn't see their relatives with dementia. But some of those things can be remedied. You can start a new business. You can reschedule a wedding. But when someone dies, we can never fix it. You know, that moment is gone forever. It's final. And we missed that chance because we were doing what they asked us to do, but what they weren't willing to do themselves. Mm. And this is why I joined the COVID Bereave Families for Justice group, mm. who were so instrumental in getting the COVID inquiry, which is ongoing. Mm. And we're now, thanks to the, uh, the justice group, we're now core participants in that inquiry. Good. And people sometimes wonder, you know, what is the purpose? The purpose of it is to find answers and learn for the future for when something like this happens again. And this inquiry is important for everyone, not just for the bereaved, because it could help shape and improve how we deal with this in the future. Yes. With a future pandemic, with a war, with, I don't know, a natural disaster. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that a lot of us have paid a very high price for those lessons. Our lost loved ones paid the highest price. And I think it would be a sin for this government, for the COVID inquiry, to squander those lessons that cost us so dearly to not take testimony from those most affected by the pandemic and the actions of this government and to marginalize us in this inquiry. Mm. And yes, it, the inquiry, it's not about blame. It is about accountability, of course, but so that we can, through that accountability, that we can learn. I mean, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. And I know others feel the same, other bereaved. And if our experiences can somehow inform in a positive way the, the future responses to a situation like this, that would, be, mm -hmm. that would be some comfort that might give some meaning to our, to our suffering. Let's hope that happens for the sake of Lorelei and all the other bereaved. 
Right, I feel like a dreadful chat show host now, or a presenter of The One Show, where I have to move from that clip to one that lightens the mood. But forgive me, as I do just that. Here is a guest that we, that's John, my son and producer, and I, both hoped to have as a guest from the very start of this podcast. And we finally managed it this year. This is the fantastic John Ronson, talking about, well, what else? Robbie Williams. A couple of years after my donkey conversation with Paul McKenna, I was in Los Angeles and I went into this hotel. Uh, There was Robbie Williams sitting with Paul McKenna and Gillian Anderson. And uh, and I know Rob because I did this adventure with him where we went looking for UFOs. Yeah. We went UFO hunting together. Which he's obsessed with, isn't he? Yes, and Mm. me and him went alien hunting in the deserts of Nevada. Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, kept missing, kept missing aliens. Like people would say to us, if you'd only been here like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> there were loads two, of them. <laughs> yeah, they were having a the fight by the side of the road and he just missed it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so I said, you know, can I join you? And um, so I sat down and I said to Paul McKenna, when you cured me of, you know, when you did that NLP on me and, you know, I, I no longer have those fears of that my wife is dead if I can't get her on the phone. Wow. And thank you. And he gave me a massive hug. He was so pleased that it that it had worked. So then we, we sat around the table and we were talking and we were talking about aliens. Mm. And Gillian Anderson's new husband uh, was there. I think they'd just got married. And he said to her... Uh, he said, oh, uh, were there ever any aliens in the X-Files? <laughs> and, and she looked so thrilled. And she said, oh, darling, it was all aliens. <laughs> it's made me laugh so much. Oh, how sweet. It was all aliens. She, she, uh, she was just delighted yeah. that her husband knew nothing about the X-Files. Yeah, that's good. That means that yeah. he didn't fall in love with the image. Yes, yeah. exactly. Nice. It's well, how brilliant that it's actually cured you, though. Yeah, it did. It cured me. I don't have that particular worry. I, don't, I mean, I still have a lot of other anxieties. I should have asked him to have cured me of all of them, <laughs> just, sort of that, just that one. But yeah, it worked. He did this thing on me called the swish technique. I should say, by the way, for people who, you know, listening to this and think, well, does this mean that NLP, you know, neurolinguistic programming, that kind of works? Mm. And I'd say that by and large, it's, it's kind of a pseudoscience. But if you're going to get anyone to do this stuff on you, it should be Paul McKenna, because he really really can hypnotise you and mm-hmm. he did hypnotise me and so it did work for me yeah but I don't think it's I don't think NLP is like a cure or he could have made Robbie Williams very happy by hypnotising him to see an alien and make his <laughs> make his day wouldn't that be delightful you know one time <laughs> I the last time I think I saw Rob was again I was in Los Angeles and I was at a hotel and I was working in the lobby mm. and I heard John and I, and I heard it a few times, and I, and I didn't like register. And then, like the third time, I looked up, and there was Rob with his kids. Yeah. And he said, "Come and have breakfast with us." So I had breakfast with them, and uh, and he kept ordering like dish after dish, like waffles and bacon, and it was like a big like <laughs> slap up breakfast for like him and his kids and me, and you know, and it was an expensive hotel. Mm. And at the end of the breakfast. He just like got up and left. And <laughs> so I paid the bill. It was like <laughs> it was like three hundred dollars or something and I and I paid it. Oh. And then about three months later, I got an email from him saying, John, it's Rob. I'm in Dresden. 
did I contribute to that? Did I contribute any money to that breakfast? Oh, brilliant. Uh, and I was like, no, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's like, oh, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. And How lovely of him. Yeah. Because it's very easy, I think, for people in that position to get so used to the fact that you've got a record company executive. They'll say, I'll get it. I'll sort all this out. There's always someone mm. there who handles all that. So you, you must be very sort of almost second nature to just stand up and walk out. Absolutely. I think that must be what happened. Yeah. And then just for some reason, three months later, it popped into his head as a as a concern. Hang on a minute. This, this wasn't a business meeting. This was a social event, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That's really nice to hear. I've heard some lovely things about Robbie Williams from a number of people. I've never met him, but I've always... You sort of suspect that if enough people say those nice things about someone, that it's mm. got to be true. He is the loveliest person. He it really is. I, every time I meet him... It's it's always kind of warming and we always we have adventures. He has, you know, his crazy life where he hired a private plane for the day to like <laughs> you know, look for aliens in the in the desert. <laughs> but my favorite memory of that day was um we turned up at the plane that he'd hired for the day. And there was a woman standing there and she said, you know, Mr. Williams, Mr. Williams' friends, you know, welcome to your plane. This is your plane for the day. Uh, she said, What I want to tell you is <laughs> What I want to tell you is Snoop Dogg uses this plane a lot. <laughs> what I'm saying is you can do anything. <laughs> and, and we all like looked at each other and, <laughs> and Rob's friend Brandon said, um, well, can we stand up as the plane lands? Oh, <laughs> we did. We all stood up as the plane landed. So. <laughs> the seatbelt sign is on, but I'm going to go to the loo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we were like plane surfing. Like as the plane came into land, we stood up. Oh, I have just. I just have <laughs> yeah. a filmic view of the end of that day of you flying around looking for aliens everywhere in this aeroplane. <laughs> and then just at the end of it, having been disappointed, that hostess, she waves goodbye to you from the steps of the plane. Rips off her face. The jazz, exactly. And a great <laughs> green tongue comes out and she laughs hysterically <laughs> at the fools, you fools. <laughs> and not only that, by shaking her hand, she's become impregnated <laughs> and, and will now rule the world. <laughs> With Robbie Williams' spawn. <laughs> <laughs> John Ronson, such a funny and endlessly inventive man. What a joy to have him as a guest. Right, it's the last clip of this episode, but I've got a few more favourites, so look out for part two coming very soon. And possibly part three, four, five, six. Anyway, this is the creator and star of the huge hit podcast, My Dad Wrote a Porno, talking about how that all came about. Actually, I don't think I'm spoiling anything if I tell you it was because his dad wrote a porno. Oh, sorry if that messed everything up. Anyway, here is Jamie Morton. For those who don't know, you know, my dad wrote this book called Blind Blinked, and it's an erotic novel, and he sent it to me, and I found it disgusting and hilarious because <laughs> it's the worst book ever written. I mean, I yeah. don't know if you're familiar with my dad's work, but it is awful. I am familiar, yes. It's not uh, what I'd call... Class. It's not high art, is not it? Not high art. No. Though. But it's brilliant in its own way. Yeah. And, you know, he, the spelling's off and he forgets characters' names halfway through a chapter. <laughs> and it's just chaos, basically. And the sex is just appalling. And, yeah, I've said it before, but if, if I weren't alive, I would swear he was a virgin because he doesn't know anything. 
about the female body. Um, and some of it's virtually impossible. Not vir- literally impossible. We've had doctors on the show to be like, can you grab a cervix in a sexual scenario? And they're like, absolutely not. You'd need forceps. I'm like, okay, good. So, yeah, but we made, we, and we made this uh, podcast and it's just, yeah, become this this thing. So, so how did you start doing that? Did you actually just talk to them and say, look at this thing? And yeah, them a bit. A hundred percent. It was kind of born from exactly that. My dad sent it to me. He didn't tell me it was erotica. He just said that he was writing a novel. And because he was a builder and had just retired, I was like, what a great way to spend your retirement, Dad. Yeah. Keep your mind active, be creative. Mm. You know, I once said be creative for the first time. And he was like, building is very creative. He's from Northern Ireland. It's like, there's a lot of creativity in concrete. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Um, so he was always a creative man, but uh, maybe not literally. And he, yeah, sent it to me. I discovered it was pornography and I just immediately ran to the pub, grabbed a load of friends and was like, <laughs> guys, my dad's written this book. You have to hear it. Uh, and two of the friends who were there were Alice and James, because it was a group of my mates from university. And yeah, it, it, we were in this pub, and it was the format of the show. I was reading it, and all of my mates would chip in and be brilliantly funny, because, you know, I've got amazingly witty friends. And it just kind of quickly became clear that there was something in this. And it, it kind of became my party piece, mm. that, uh, you know, gatherings and, and, you know, social occasions. People would be like, I'll read a bit of Belinda. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, people seem to love this. Maybe we should actually, you know, yeah. do something with it. And it, and, it, and it felt like podcasting was the perfect format for it because it was anonymous, you know, you wouldn't have to know that you were listening to it. Because I've read somewhere that the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon kind of was born out of the ebook, mm. so that no one had to know that you were reading you don't see this kind cover. of naughty stuff yes. on the tube. Exactly. So we were like, well, that could kind of work. And how would you want to visualise this? You wouldn't, because, as you say, it's not the most <laughs> titillating. So um, Imagine you going to the BBC. <laughs> exactly. Well, this was it. It was so funny. I think around about Series 3, the BBC got in touch, and they were like, oh, we'd like to be involved. And we were like, oh, now you want yeah, to be involved. Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. Um, The the thought of it being a number one podcast wasn't even really a thing. I mean, I didn't think about that. I just wanted to tell this story because I thought it was funny and people would enjoy it. And the idea of selling out the Royal Albert Hall was just not even remotely... I mean, it's just laughable, really, yes. that that would even be a consideration or, or that this could have taken us there or, or our own show on HBO or whatever, you know, all the yeah. things that we've done. Amazing. It's just insane. And, of course, insane as it is, we look forward to that happening to my time capsule next year. But don't worry, success won't change me. I'll still be a Pratt. Please feel free to replace the word Pratt with any word you feel is appropriate. Yes, yes, I know what you're all thinking. And I know it begins with C. Thanks for listening. Do tell your friends. Do subscribe to this podcast. Do rate and even review us on the podcast provider of your choice. Do follow us on social media. Do get in touch if you have any questions. Do listen to the theme tune on Spotify. And do thank our producer, editor and composer of the theme tune, John Fenton Stevens, for making this podcast what it is. And that is a lot better than if I'd done it on my own. So, until next time, good luck with your New Year's resolutions. I've started mine already. It's just three words. Drink more water. So far, I've managed the first two. Cheers. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.